0: Well, the bowls of wrath are not yet done. We uh, we looked at the first five of these bowls of wrath in the book of Revelation last Lord's Day, and today we come to the end of them, the sixth and the seventh bowls of wrath. I do want to step back. I'm going to make a few structural points this morning about the book and remind us of a couple things. If you've taken a look at the book of Revelation in your Bible, you'll notice this rather Intriguing and obvious fact. Uh, and, and, and it's this, namely that the book does not end after chapter 16. Chapter 16 has the seven bowls of wrath. Those are total. These bowls are associated with the final judgment, but the book doesn't end there. And that's not because the end is not in view in these bowl judgments. It most certainly is. However, John's narration of the end has not yet ended. John keeps narrating the end. And so, by way of a quick preview, and perhaps to uh, stir us up to anticipate the future, I want to say a word about where John is going, where the book goes from here. So after the text today, the book of Revelation will get more pointed and more specific about the judgments on the main protagonists in the book. It'll move to the final resolution of history. And in brief, it goes like this. Now, these enemies of the church, they've been introduced in the book in this order. Satan was introduced first, the beast and the false prophet next, and then Babylon. And so when John gets done with the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, what he does is this. In chapter 17 and 18, he narrates in detail. He, he kind of gives you a blowout picture. He blows up the picture. He narrates in detail the destruction of Babylon the harlot. So what he does is he narrates them in the reverse order that they appear in the book. They appear in one order, Satan, the beast, the false prophet Babylon. John takes them off the scene in the reverse order. So in, in chapter 17 and 18, the destruction of Babylon. Chapter 19, the destruction of the beast and the false prophet. Chapter 20 narrates the, the destruction of Satan, the dragon. And then chapters 21 and 22, they narrate the end, the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. So there's a deep logic and a structure to what John is doing. I know it can kind of make your head spin But the book repays a kind of front-to-back reading over and over again. You begin to see these big structural uh, links, and they're very important. In the book of Revelation, getting the form right, the form of the book, is is critical to getting the content right. But today we have to finish these bowl judgments, and we have these two headings, the sixth and seventh bowl. There's an outline on the back inside page of your bulletin. So first, the sixth bowl. There's no specific judgment poured out here. It really is preparation for the events of the seventh bowl. And in the sequence of the trumpets, the sixth trumpet, parallel to the sixth bowl, saw restraining angels stationed at the Euphrates River loosed. And what happened in the trumpet was something very similar to what happens here. There was this massive, demonically driven army that went forth to kill, the text said, a third of mankind. So now we've come to the sixth bowl. So we're in Revelation 16, verse 12. And this bowl is poured out also on the Euphrates River. So what it's doing is it escalates the trumpets. Seven seals. The seven seals are escalated by the seven trumpets. The seven trumpets are escalated by the seven bowls. That's what's going on. The angel pours his, his bowl out on the Euphrates and the water is dried up, the text says. So, the Euphrates River is being evoked, being called on here because it has this long biblical significance. It's the place, the Euphrates is north of Israel. It's where the final battle narrated in the book of Ezekiel with Gog and Magog, would come from. Babylon and Assyria attacked Israel from the north, from that direction, the direction of the Euphrates. This, This river is deeply embedded in the biblical text. The ancient empire of Babylon, the empire which enslaved the Israelites and dragged them into exile in the 6th century B.C., Babylon relied on this river for protection. It had military and strategic significance. And yet, in the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah, they prophesy and speak. We heard one such text this morning from Isaiah 44 of this river being dried up. And their prophetic words were fulfilled in the 6th century B.C. when Cyrus... The Persian king diverted the river, crossed it, captured the Babylonian Empire, or invaded it, toppled it. That led to the release of the people of God from exile. All of that background is in John's mind, the spirit's mind, as as John prophesies here. And so we have in our text another statement about the drying up of the Euphrates to prepare the way for kings. Kings from the East, just like the ancient King Cyrus was from the East. So you get this often in Revelation. It's what makes the book quite baffling to modern readers. You get this re-narration of ancient history to prepare you for the final battle of history. For the church's life in history and for the final battle. So that's that's what John is doing. That's the big picture. He's saying, just as this happened in Israel's history and they were released from exile, so too there will be a battle that releases you from your exile, from your overlords, from the bestial powers. And so, the drying up of the Euphrates is a kind of Red Sea event. It's going to draw the enemies of God into their destruction And it's going to lead to the vindication of the church. So the Euphrates, just like the waters and the seas in this chapter, should, we've contended for this before, should be invoked figuratively. Seriously, but figuratively. So, you get this demonically unleashed army. We see this in verse 13. John sees, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Now again, just to, get the, just to get the playlist right, the dragon is Satan, the beast is the empire, and the false prophet is the propaganda arm of the beast. And these three figures together, we already saw this way back, they're a, they're a false trinity. They're a parody of the Holy Trinity. And from their mouths come these unclean spirits, which is the source of, their, of Babylon's uncleanness, of Babylon's idolatry. Why are they like frogs? Well, probably because frogs evoke the system of plagues at the Exodus. And John is continually drawing this Exodus language. And so we're told in verse 14... Expressly that these are demonic spirits, they perform deceptive signs. And what they do here is they go abroad to the kings of the world and they assemble them for this great battle on the day of God Almighty, the text says. So there's a couple things right here to note that are important. Notice that the text has moved very quickly from the kings of the east to the kings of the whole world. This is confirmed by the rest of verse 14. The demonic spirits assemble the kings of the whole world. This is not a localized event that John is describing. He's using localized terminology from the history of Israel symbolically to picture a final judgment. And they're assembled for the battle of the great day of God Almighty. A clear reference to the end of history. Which is great because it's the day of God's vindication. It's the day of setting the world right. So, there's this great battle coming at the end. And what we'll see is that this battle is going to be narrated two more times. Once in chapter 19 and once in chapter 20. John narrates this battle about the end of all things three different times in three different ways. So, now in verse 15 we get a really crucial exhortation. It's kind of interjected. In many English Bibles, it's in parentheses. And this is really important because this reminds us what these sometimes difficult and confusing texts of the book of Revelation are supposed to be doing to us. It's as if John realizes, yes, this is complicated. And there's a whole whole layering of symbolism here. And it can just seem like some some unreal world that's being unfurled. And then in verse 15, it's like having cold water thrown on you. So just in case we've gotten drowsy, or we might be dozing, verse 15 is about keeping your eye on the ball, Behold, I come like a thief. Right in the middle of this. Right in the middle of frogs, and unclean spirits, and kings from the east, and Euphrates rivers. It's like, (laughs) behold, I come like a thief. That's what the book's about. (laughs) So it's like John is saying, I have to stop. I have to get people to focus and keep their eye on the ball. This is the standard New Testament language for the coming of Jesus Christ. This is what the book is about. It starts... In chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. His unveiling. The book is about seeing Jesus in his transfigured glory. And we don't want to lose sight of that for all of the beasts and kings and demons flying around. Right? It's not a video game. The book is about this vision. right? We will... Be like He is when He appears, for we will see Him as He is. And so, His coming is not to overtake you as a thief. He comes as a thief, but the rest of the New Testament says to the church, Look, this coming should not shock you, or surprise you, or catch you off guard. And therefore, the need of the church is perpetual vigilance. A kind of constant need to wake ourselves up. A kind of sense of when you think of actually seeing the Lord Jesus Christ face to face, when he appears in glory with resplendent hosts in the midst of his angelic hosts and the heavens and the earth flee away and the dead are raised. You don't want to be a person who says, oh yeah, that's right, I forgot, this is what Christianity was all about. Oh yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right, this is how the story ends. Like you don't want to be shocked. You don't want to think, gee, I just thought we went to church forever and died. And then another generation went to church and they died. We don't want to say, oh yeah, that's right. The text continues, blessed, so behold, I'm coming like a thief, and then a benediction on you, blessing to you who stay awake. It's about watching and being alert and awake to long for, to prepare for this appearing. This is not to say that Jesus does not come now by his word and spirit. He's always coming to the church, evaluating, sifting, judging. But he will come in glory to consummate all things. And that is the end for which we were made. You might remember earlier in the book, the church in Sardis, this is way back in chapter 3, was told, wake up and strengthen the things that remain. Otherwise, Christ says, I will come to you like a thief. Same is true of all congregations. Congregations need to wake up. Because they go in and out of existence. They disintegrate. They lose sight of what they're, what they're about or what they're for. They become social organizations. They become some religious version of the Kiwanis Club. Right? And so Jesus says to the church at Sardis, you have to wake up. You have to strengthen the things that remain and then build out from there. And why is this is because the powers the principalities the forces that are that are in view in revelation they exert continual pressure on you and me and on the church toward sleep. Right? This is one of the big things our culture does. It creates a kind of spiritual drowsiness. Right, where we're constantly distracted, flitting from one thing to another. Where we lead disintegrated lives. Where we lack focus. And so this book is there to help us. Everything is conspiring against you, staying awake. And so, part of being awake is seeing things in the right proportion. When that scene that I described earlier, when that transfigured Christ appears in the midst of his host, not only will much of what we think is important vaporize instantly, there will be people whose whole lives will vaporize in that instant. But even good Christian people will realize they have things out of proportion, they thought little things were big and big things were little and peripheral things were central and central things were peripheral. This is just how we are. We're fallen. We're weak. We're wounded people. And we live in a culture that is, tr- that is constantly trying to distract us. And this book is saying you can lead an integrated, focused, awake life. And so the corollary to staying awake is keeping your garments on, the text says, so we don't, the, the, the one who has their garments on doesn't go about naked. Now, Revelation has spoken of your garments in two senses. First, let, let me note this about, about, uh, about this language. This is glory language. This is about your beauty and glory. It's investiture language, vestments, right? Garments are God wants to clothe you with his glory. He wants to invest you with the splendor of the transfigured Christ. Right? Um, He wants you to live a new life as a new creature. And so, your garments are white and they're resplendent because of the blood of the Lamb. But also, the text says, you can make your garments white because, because by means of the righteous deeds of the saints. So there's two ways to stay awake. You continually... Clothe yourself in Christ and his righteousness. We do that when we confess our sins and we repent of them. But you also continually seek to do good, to do righteous deeds. So this is an exhortation then to, uh, to make a sort of fashion statement. To be invested. With the glory of God. And this means concretely in the situation. To resist compromise with the bestial big powers. That want to seduce you. And so the picture here is of a man who's fully clothed. Fully awake. As opposed to one who's drowsy. And disrobed and sleeping. Now this imagery. Of not being naked and exposed is used fairly graphically by Ezekiel and he uses it of Israel's fornicating with the nations. To be caught naked here means to be a fornicator with the Babylonian harlot. So keep your garments on. Stay alert. Don't fornicate with the world. That's what John is saying. Yes, we we have a complicated relationship with the world. If we just had these texts, you know, you, you, it's possible that a person could retract and be fearful. Uh, but we love the world. God loves the world. Right? We love apples and rivers and children. But inasmuch as the world is turned against God as a system of things, we oppose it. And we must not let it corrupt us. We're life-affirming people who can nevertheless say, don't fornicate with the Babylonian powers. Or as we've said in here before, we are against the world, even when we are against the world, we are against it for the sake of the world. That is my favorite way of putting this. When Christians have to be against the world, we are always against the world for the sake of the world. So keep your garments on. So the text then continues now, now that John has hopefully woken us up a little bit, he goes back, he's going to go back to some geography and some kings and the like. So, in verse 16, the assembled kings of the world come to a place in Hebrew that's called Armageddon. Now, there's lots of popular books about Armageddon, movies and the like. Um, I I think most of them are, are probably not handling the text accurately, so I'll say a few things about it here. Um, Armageddon has sort of become symbolic for final battle, and in that sense, I think that's right. Um, Armageddon means Mount of Megiddo. And the the difficulty here in this text, if one attempts to take this literally, is that Megiddo is a plain. It's 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 a level, flat area. There's no mountain there. It's a couple hours north of Jerusalem. Maybe a two-day journey north and east. And it's a site. Megiddo is a place in Israel. It's a site of a couple of important battles in Israel's history. And yet, all of the scenes of history's final battle in the prophets, they all take place in Jerusalem, not in Megiddo. And so Armageddon here is much like Euphrates, much like the sea, much like the wilderness, much like the various bodies of water. It's a piece of John's symbolic geography. It's very important to get this right. Otherwise, people are going to insist that the actual Euphrates River dries up, or a third of the sea actually turns to blood. But John is using these pieces of biblical geography in a symbolic way. And Armageddon is the symbol of a global combat zone for the final conflict between the kings of the whole world and the Lord God Almighty. So that's the sixth bowl. The second point here is the seventh bowl. Verse 17. The angel pours his bowl into the air. There's a loud voice from the temple. Notice this in the text. We've pointed this out before, but this is, again, part of John's symbolic architecture. The text says there's a loud voice from the temple, from the throne, saying, It is done. Do you notice what John has done here? He's done this from from chapter 4 on. He has placed the Davidic throne in the midst of the heavenly temple. right? Which was not the case in the architecture of the city of Jerusalem. right? So he's taken that throne, he's put it inside the temple. Because that's the holy place where the Lamb is enthroned. But in any case, the voice here says this. It is done. Now that's a voice that should echo. Echo in your mind. This is the corollary. This is the consequence of what Jesus said on the cross. When Jesus was atoning for our sins. Offering his life for the redemption of the world. For the gathering of his church. And he says, it is done. That judgment on the cross entails this judgment. That it is done leads to this it is done. And we should expect this it is done here because we were told at the beginning of these seven bowls of wrath, back in chapter 15, that with these seven bowls of wrath, the wrath of God is finished. Done. It's another sign that we're at the end. But there's even a more basic sign here. In chapter 21 of the book, when the new heavens and the new earth, that thing we are waiting for, which come with our Lord, when they descend, God himself tells John, it is done. This is a critical structural clue. As I said before, the book of Revelation will really repay you if you get its outline right. So what what John is doing is he's tying these bold judgments, it is done, to the coming of the new heavens and the earth by having the exact same language used by the angels. It is done. It is done. And so, in verse 18, we get another one of these really noisy visual scenes. I, I call these scenes cosmic cacophonies. They're, they're very loud, and they're very overwhelming. And it's, they're modeled on the appearance of God at Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. The text says there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. We first saw this, this set of phenomenon back in chapter 4, where all of this noise proceeded from the very throne of God. And we said way back then that that means all the judgments in the book proceed from the throne. Now, I'm going to make another structural point, but it's it's really important. So back in chapter four, it was. Now, now please get this. In chapter four, it was this lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. This is another sort of a, a way of peering into John's literary artistry and genius under the Spirit. So chapter four, lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. In chapter seven, I mean in the seventh seal, that's the second time we see this language, it was lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake. In the seventh trumpet, in chapter 7, it was lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. You see, this confirms the reading we've been taking for the whole book. The seals, the trumpets, and the bowls are all parallel. They ratchet it up. And so every time John sees this scene, this cacophony scene of the final judgment, the coming he adds a phenomenon. And here, it's flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as never has been since man was on the earth, and we'll see shortly even greater or heavier hail. So John is not just randomly saying, hey, there's a lot of noisy stuff. This confirms what we said about the structure of the book. The seals, the trumpets, the bowls, they all run up to the end. But they're parallel Progressively richer, fuller descriptions leading to the same event. And this is how John tells you that, literally. So, this is a full description of an unparalleled earthquake. And that means this is the final shaking of heaven and earth spoken of in Haggai chapter 2, cited in Hebrews chapter 12. This is the removal of everything that can be shaken so that the unshakable kingdom of God may come. That's another way of God saying to you, behold, I come like a thief, stay awake. Because when I come, it's going to be this great shaking and everything that can be shaken and jarred loose from your life, everything that's flitting about on the surface is going to be blown away as chaff. There's this great cosmic earthquake. And verse 19 contains the results. The great city Babylon was split in three parts. And the cities of the nations collapsed. Again, this cannot be a localized event. All the cities of the nations collapse when Babylon collapses. When the mother of harlots falls, all the daughter harlots fall. So, The battle here involves all the kings of the earth, the fall of Babylon. And ultimately, I think it's prefigured in the fall of the Roman Empire. But John is still, I think, pointing beyond that to a final battle. And verse 20 tells us that God remembered Babylon. That means he acted toward her in terms of fidelity. This is God being faithful. Covenant language. He remembered her. And he, she drains the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And at this point, the bowls are all empty. All the seven bowls of wrath are drained by Babylon and the nations in her thrall. And verse 20 says, Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. We saw this again earlier in the sixth seal. Also a preview of the end. Creation trembles. It flees from the unveiling of the Lord God who is the judge. This language, again, is picked up in chapter 20 at the scene of the great white throne judgment. Heaven and earth flee away from the presence of him who sits on the throne. Again, this is another structural clue. John t- ties the seals to the bulls, to the white throne judgment with the exact same language. It's his way of telling you, look, this is about the end, this is about the end, and this is about the great white throne judgment. This is about the end. He does this over and over and over. So, in fact, when he picks this language up in chapter 20, in heaven and earth flee away, this clears the way. For the new heavens and the new earth in chapter 21. Because in chapter 21, when the new heavens and the new earth appear, it says, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. It's the same language. Heaven and earth flee away so that the new heavens can come. So finally, verse 21, there's this escalation of the hail. Again, evoking these plagues from Egypt. Big hailstones fall down. The people curse God. The time for repentance is past. So, to close, I want to re- simply refer you back to the exhortation in verse 15 because it's, it is one of the great purposes of the book and it's surely what John expects us to take first and foremost from this text. The end has come in Jesus Christ. As did the new creation come In principle, when he uttered on the cross, it is finished. And that end, of all things, that coming new creation, it continues to pressure, to press in on us. It impinges, albeit mysteriously, on on our lives, on history. That's part of what John's book is about. The seal seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and the bowls. We can't, we can't pinpoint them one-to-one. We can't read the, look at the news and say, well, that's the fourth seal. But we know that these judgments are here. So we're oriented toward the end. The Christ who has come continues to come by word and spirit, continues to come and sift his church, and shall come in this way. And that final coming will involve a conflagration, a battle with all the kings of the earth. A battle with a big Babylonian anti-Christian system. Now, I think if we're honest, this fundamental structural fact of our existence as Christians is something we lose sight of. Daily, even hourly, even moment, moment by moment. We're not really oriented toward this. This is pretty obvious, I think. But these things ought not to be. Eschatological people, and there are no other kind of Christians, eschatological people live as people of the end. To have been gripped by and to be brought into union with the risen Christ, the transfigured Christ, who exists not in this age but in the power of the age to come who is himself living out of the power of the new creation, is for you to be oriented in a fundamental way to the new creation. Christians are eschatological people all the way down. We're not just people who believe in an eschaton, an end. We're not just people who say, yes, eventually history gets there. We're people who've been pervaded and embraced and invaded by that end in Christ. We live in the end, in Jesus Christ. We live in these last days, under the end, the surely coming end, and we live only by anticipating and longing for the end. Otherwise, we live distracted and diverted and disintegrated lives. This is the great challenge of the Christian life, I would say, in our time or in any time, is to somehow be able to connect all the dots of our sometimes frantic lives. Obviously, I'm not advocating that anyone shirk any responsibilities. People have a lot of things to do. We have long to-do lists. We have legitimate, good, earthly obligations, we must tend to them. Nevertheless, the scriptural orientation does stand for us, right? They are all to sort of be integrated and oriented toward this One, who has appeared and will appear. Jesus, who has appeared in the flesh, right, this is what Christmas is about, is coming. I've often thought one of the ways to rectify this is we have no eschatological season. We we have Advent. We talk about His first coming. We mention the second coming at Advent. We have Easter. We talk about the resurrection. We have Pentecost. We have Ascension. But there's no eschaton season, where the church focuses for four weeks a year on the fact that the Jesus who has come is coming. To be fair, a good bit of this can be done at Advent, but it tends to get lost in the monumental glory of the, the, the word becoming flesh. Jesus is coming and we don't want to be people for whom the response is, oh yeah, that's right. I forgot. So wake up. Wake up and keep your garments on, which means don't fornicate with the passing, ephemeral, idolatrous world order. Keep your garments on. Christ has made them resplendent with glory. Amen.